Welcome to the Indigenous United Podcast with your hosts, Sierra, Atea, and Alexi. This is a podcast about issues that are important to us as Indigenous students at UC Berkeley. Welcome to part two of our three-part series on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, commonly referred to as NAGPRA. In part one, we interviewed Shannon O'Loughlin and learned about the act and its history at UC Berkeley. In today's episode, we'll focus on the implementation of the law through an interview with Melanie O'Brien, who is the current manager and designated federal official of the National NAGPRA program. She holds an MA in public history from Loyola University of Chicago and is currently based in Washington, D.C. In our interview, Alexi asked Melanie to explain how she approaches NAGPRA work. He asked about a recent ancestral repatriation to his tribe, the Amamudsen, a non-federally recognized tribe whose ancestral lands span present-day Santa Cruz. And finally, how the current political climate has shifted the conversation. So without further ado, we'll begin the interview. Thank you so much, Melanie, for being able to join us this afternoon and in our conversations about NAGPRA and really just trying to get an understanding of it. Um, I think a lot of us here at UC Berkeley don't really understand everything. And so, you know, an expert like yourself could be really helpful. Um, And it would be great if you could just introduce yourself, introduce your position just for all the listeners. Sure. My name is Melanie O'Brien and I am the manager of the National Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act program. Um, which is housed within the National Park Service, um, which is a part of the Department of the Interior in the federal government. I'm based in Washington, D.C., but uh, in my home right now in Maryland. My responsibilities for NAGPRA and for the law are to administer the regulatory process. I conduct activities that are delegated in the law to the Secretary of the Interior. We can talk more about some of the specific work that I do and and that the uh, staff in my office do. We are a small team. Uh, There are five of us that manage the administrative work related to NAGPRA, but we first and foremost are representatives of the law. We don't take a side in any NAGPRA issue. We are here to carry out the law and represent what Congress intended happen with these ancestral remains and and objects under NAGPRA. Thank you, Melanie. And um, I'd really love to hear about how long you've been doing this work and kind of what got you into it. Sure. So I have a degree in history. And I went to work doing research for a consulting firm that did work in public policy and history, particularly at the National Archives, uh, researching documents to support litigation. Um, We worked in two main areas, one in Native American litigation cases and the other in environmental cases. We worked mostly for the Department of Justice, and I was heavily involved in several of the tribal trust cases that were being litigated against the United States for resources and assets that were mismanaged by the federal government. I did that work for about nine years. And in uh, about 2009, the administration, at that time, the Obama administration, began to really focus on resolving a lot of these cases between Native Americans and the U.S. government. And the work involved in settlement is um, quite a bit different than active litigation. And, And that wasn't as engaging to me. And, and I had spent so much time working with federal employees, and I had an enormous amount of respect 
for people who had dedicated their lives to serving Native American people in the federal government. So I was really looking for an opportunity to go to work for a federal agency in Native American affairs. That somehow got me a job with the National NAGPRA program. I started out working on federal register notices for the NAGPRA program. I did that for about two years, and then the program manager retired, and I took over her responsibilities and ultimately was hired then as the permanent manager of the program. So uh, it's a little strange, and a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that I kind of came to NAGPRA with no real NAGPRA experience. I am the first um, manager who has had a background in museums, Previously, um, there were archaeologists and attorneys um, who held this position, and I would say that they, they brought a different approach. I am very much interested in, in my role providing assistance to everybody, both museums and tribes, in this process to facilitate the intent of Congress, which is to get these ancestors back home. That's really interesting that you made that distinction between the different professional backgrounds and how your role is is implemented. Uh, do you mind going in a little bit to like maybe uh, the difference between maybe uh, your experience and your profession uh, versus someone like an archaeologist or trained in anthropology? Yeah, this uh, the difference is um, comes up quite often in, in talking with people who who are involved in this work, and and certainly people who work in anthropology departments um, or at anthropology museums. We definitely have a different academic background. And, and actually, this is something I've, I've struggled a little bit with in trying to be more understanding and empathetic to some of the people that I've met who have a different approach than I do. You know, as, as a historian and as an expert witness in, in litigation, things, were, things are knowable. <laughs> And to me, um, it seems pretty clear that we have information to support connections between these artifacts and ancestors and the present day people in our communities. So I often struggle in talking with anthropologists and archaeologists who feel they can't figure out who these people are or who they're connected to. I, uh, I spend a lot of time trying to convince people that we're not applying some scientific or academic standard in the NAGPRA process. What we're applying and what Congress said to do is to make reasonable decisions about the connections between people of the past and the people today. So I, I often struggle with the difference between my academic education as a historian, where all you had to do is go find the documents um, or conduct an oral history and, and you could find the information you needed. And uh, anthropologists and archaeologists, where it seems that, that the mystery is, is a much bigger part of, of the process than, than it is in history. And uh, I'm getting very energized by this conversation. You know, I had no idea that you worked with my community before. And I don't really know much about my tribe's petition or my tribe's involvement in this process. I was wondering if you could kind of give me a rundown of like, yeah, you know, I know that we're a non-recognized tribe. We're not recognized by the government. Um, and you work for a federal position. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering what that tension was, or if you can kind of walk, walk me through uh, that collaboration in that um, instance uh, last year. Sure, yeah, so I, I think it's important to recognize, certainly there in California, um, the number of tribes that are um, not federally recognized 
as a historian, I have a full and nearly complete understanding of, of a lot of the reasons for that. The, the history of Native American relations with the federal government in California is particularly tricky. And like the history of all Native Americans in this country, it's, in, it's extremely violent and awful um, what has occurred in the past. And so I, as a federal official, can tell you very clearly that while there is an official relationship between the Department of the Interior and certain Native American tribes, there is also a clear recognition in NAGPRA that that is not the only relationship that qualifies for repatriation. So NAGPRA provides for a process through which uh, non-federally recognized tribes can receive ancestral remains that are connected to them. The process requires coming before a federal advisory committee, which is part of my responsibilities under the law is to administer that committee. And, and the reason for that is the federal relationship with federally recognized tribes. As um, the Secretary of the Interior, my ultimate boss that I report to, has a relationship with those federally recognized tribes, there's a need to ensure that any repatriation to a non-federally recognized tribe has ensured that the federally recognized tribe's rights have been observed. So in the case of UC Santa Cruz and the ancestral remains that they held at that campus, they had uh, consulted um, with federally recognized tribes and had no objections to returning their um, ancestral remains to the Amamutsan. And so uh, it did require that UC Santa Cruz, along with um, a representative from the tribe, came to the Federal Advisory Committee to present the request. In a lot of ways, as um, perhaps interesting as that process may sound, it's pretty routine at this point. You know, it's been 30 years since NAGPRA was passed. The committee has a responsibility to ask questions of the university primarily um, to ensure that they followed the process and, and completed the work as they were required to do. The committee also um, asked some questions about the collection and, and where it came from and how it was identified to be Native American and if uh, Santa Cruz had done its appropriate consultation. The committee made a unanimous decision to recommend to the Secretary of the Interior who makes the final decision that uh, the remains should go to the Amamutsan. Um, and so we carried out the, a very bureaucratic process after that of writing a letter on behalf of the secretary to UC Santa Cruz, publishing a notice in the federal register, which is like a newspaper for the federal government. And then that completed the process. The process of coming before a federal committee to ask um, for ancestors can, can be an incredibly important process. And while to me it's bureaucratic and procedural, I don't believe that it, it was um, for the tribal chairman. I think that um, that process is, is significant and important. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. And, um, and I, I guess just for our listeners to understand, what do you think people may have a hard time understanding about, you know, your role or your work uh, that maybe sometimes people get frustrated about or something, but they, maybe that they could understand more that we could hear more about them? Sure. Well, so, sometimes when I talk about this, it gets a little bit like schoolhouse rocks, you know, and how a bill becomes a law. So I'll try to avoid too much of that. But Congress said in 1990 
to museums and federal agencies, you have to repatriate. And that's the bottom line of NAGPRA is repatriation, giving these things back to the people, either the people that they belong to or the people that are likely they belong to. It's an administrative bureaucratic process because it's a, it ultimately is about exchange of property. And while that's a difficult concept to apply to ancestral remains, NAGPRA relies on property law that requires you have a process before you transfer property. I'm in the process right now of, of moving, buying a new home. And um, boy, you spend two or three hours at the title company signing things and it's months and months of research before you transfer property, real estate property. So NACPRA has a little bit of that involved in it. It has to have some recording. There has to be some public notification of what's being transferred to whom to allow for what we call due process, right? To allow anybody who wants to oppose your idea to come forward, but also to make the process transparent so that tribes know what museums have and um, museums are telling the world um, what they're doing with those things that they have. So my job really is to try to carry out what Congress said we should do, which is to repatriate these things. So I spend a lot of my time helping museums and tribes finish the process, get these things repatriated. I spend a lot of time arguing with museums and federal agencies that they need to return these things. There's a whole lot of discussion in NAGPRA about the spirit of the law, what you know, what it was supposed to do. And I really don't engage in that conversation as much as I engage in the letter of the law. And the letter of the law says that you have to repatriate if you can identify in a reasonable manner, a tribe that's connected to the remains or, or to the objects. So um, I think, like I said at the beginning, that the role that I play is to support the law and, and what the law says and try to get museums and federal agencies to carry the law out. And in many times trying to correct misunderstandings about the law and what uh, it intended. And that's a really good segue to what's happening at Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's a great thing to, to bring up. And uh, if you could kind of just detail, is it the inadequacies of the law? Is it the inadequacies of Berkeley? You know, like what, what needs to be improved there? So I, I won't use that word necessarily in in talking about Berkeley, in terms of compliance with the law, Berkeley is has always been in compliance. They submitted inventories as they were supposed to do, and they've submitted summaries, and they have consulted with tribes on those collections. The difference between Berkeley and, uh, and other institutions, I would say, is their approach to the spirit of the law. There's one academic who's talked about this in NAGPRA as institutional will, and what has been different at Berkeley has been that there wasn't an emphasis by the University of California system that was proactive for repatriation. All of the UC campuses upheld the law, uh, did what they were supposed to do under the law, but didn't do more than that. We talked about the repatriation to the Amamutsen from UC Santa Cruz. And that's an example of where there was no requirement to make that return, but UC Santa Cruz wanted to do it. And so they went through the process to do so, but that was voluntary. And 
there is an aspect of NAGPRO, which is the museums are the ones that make decisions. So museums can use their own methods and their own policies to direct those decisions. What's really exciting about what's happening in California from my perspective is that the UC system and the, the office of the president um, and certainly the, the state legislature have given some very specific directions to Berkeley and, and all the campuses on what that discretion that they have, that decision-making power, how they're supposed to use it. And basically uh, the state of California and the UC office of the president have said, all the campuses should be using their discretion to repatriate. We're gonna take a quick break from the interview to make a really important announcement. In case you haven't heard, the Native American community at UC Berkeley has finally secured a temporary location for a Native Community Center. Starting the fall of 2021, we'll be able to come into community at Anthony Hall on UC Berkeley's campus. Anthony Hall is in Central Campus, just north of Barrows Hall. This achievement was accomplished through some amazing organizing by Fenosha Bowerly of Native American Student Development, as well as Beth Piatote from Native American Studies, Seth Davis from the Law School, and Patrick Naranjo from the American Indian Graduate Program. Program. This community center has been a dream for a long time that is finally starting to come true. The space will be available for Native American students to study, hold meetings, hold events, for local tribal members to come and have a safe place on campus to be in between meetings or just if they're hanging out around Berkeley. We're so excited for this and hope to see you in the fall at the community center. And now back to the interview. So are you saying that California is uh, maybe a bit different than other states in this process? Um, so I would say it's different in the same. And uh, I think you'll be surprised to see where the similarities are. In many of the Western states, especially where tribes were not removed in the, the history of land and relations, for example, in um, New Mexico, where the, the Pueblos and the Hopi and the Navajo have lived and, and despite you know, having been put on reservations, were never removed from their homelands. That has given them in some ways a stronger position when it comes to repatriation. There has been a, an easier path for them in some cases to getting their ancestors back, uh, in part because they're still present today in those locations and you know they vote and they send children to college. And those are important things for universities universities and state governments to consider in how they're going to approach a question of, of repatriation. Now, California, there are still a, a lot of resident tribes, both recognized and not. The difference in California, I would say, in large part, is it happened in 1851. The unratified treaties between the U.S. government and tribes in California have led to a lot of the current issues around recognition, but also around repatriations in California. So I'll just leave that kind of as a teaser. If you want to learn more about unratified treaties and the history of California, I would encourage you to do so because I think it's very interesting. But the similarities in California are actually with the Midwest. So the number of human remains that were removed from the state of California is almost the same as the number of human remains that were removed from the state of Illinois. 
And uh, I've been doing some work in data visualization. So the large collection and the large number of remains in collections in California is, is most similar to Illinois, Ohio, and Alabama. And in those cases in the Midwest, we are talking about removed tribes. We're talking about tribes that don't have a presence homeland states. We're also talking about a major path of movement of tribes through time. So that history is very different, but the similarities when it comes to repatriation are interesting. And so you talk about you know, movement right there, and you mentioned that. One thing that makes me think of is the idea, you know, or the stereotype of Native peoples being hunter-gatherers and like roaming the land and not really having a place. Do any of those ideas or conceptions or stereotypes or tropes kind of play into arguments against repatriation that you've observed in the past? So again, I, I think I've mentioned I'm a historian a couple of times. I think the best way to kind of explain this is is actually to talk about mounds. So most of the burials in, in the Midwest, many of them are, are burial mounds, very large mounds. There are, of course, mound building cultures across the United States. Actually, Thomas Jefferson wrote about excavating a mound in Virginia in his notes on the state of Virginia in the 18th century. Uh, he wrote about excavating the burial mound while the um, Tuscarora Indians walked along the horizon. And he talked about how there was no connection between the mound that he was digging in and the, the Native Americans walking across the horizon. That's the persistent history in the United States, that there's no connection between the people in the ground and the people walking above it. That story of, of a disconnect, it, it's just been perpetuated for hundreds and hundreds of years since, since Thomas Jefferson, you know, sort of experimented with archaeology that has persisted. So you can look today on a history network, which I wouldn't really recommend, but you can find any number of stories about the mysteries of Cahokia, right, which is this huge Mississippian civilization um, right along the Mississippi River, and how we don't know who they are, and, and they've disappeared. You know, in, in this country, there have been repeated efforts to identify those mound-building cultures. We've studied and studied them for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Smithsonian, in, in 1890, actually had a whole team of investigators, academics, archaeologists, who went out to determine who the mound-builders were. And they decided, you know, it's, it's crazy to me, but in 1890, the Smithsonian publishes a, a document, the Bureau of Ethnology, it's called, that identifies the mound building cultures and the present day tribes. There's no mystery in that report. But yet, if you go today to a museum that holds remains from Cahokia, and I think Berkeley has at least one set of human remains from, from Cahokia, you'll be hard pressed to find somebody who tells you that they're connected to present day people. If you ask the present day tribes, they will tell you exactly who they're connected to. Uh, that's interesting. Just talking about you know how museums represent native peoples and that is really an important conversation. And I wish we could just dive into that um, you know, I'd like to bring it back to California, I guess. There have been recent moves to, you know, establish truth and healing commissions and 
truth and reconciliation uh, between California Indian tribes and the state government. And this concept of healing, I think, is very interesting. And, uh, you know, who does the healing? How is healing achieved? Uh, and I wonder if you could speak to a little bit about how, you know, repatriation can help with healing, how you've observed maybe it's helped with, with healing uh, communities mm -hmm. in your work. Absolutely. I think it's a central key part of this work. I think that it's very clear that that was what Congress intended. The, the statement in, in the law is that all human remains should be treated with dignity and respect. So that's a very clear statement that the purpose of repatriation is healing. It, it, it is resolving these wrongs. I'll say personally, it's it's one of them, the things that uh, allows me to continue to do this work because it, it it's gratifying to me ethically and morally to be supporting healing. I think that many people have expressed the positive healing aspects of, of NAGPRA. I will turn to others to, to maybe talk more about how that is um, achieved because I think that a lot of times the healing comes from the process itself. I've heard tribes express that consultation for NAGPRA purposes is a part of the healing process. And, and maybe this is a good opportunity to say that, you know, maybe some, some younger people might think you just go in and you get the stuff and you take it home. But I've heard more than a few tribal elders say that how you recover the objects and the ancestors is just as important as recovering them. So I would say that there's a whole part of this process that while well, I've heard about, I, I don't personally experience. There, there is an enormous opportunity, though, of healing. And again, I would encourage anybody to look at the history of California and the horrible tragedies that occurred in California at the time of contact, certainly, um, but more importantly, at the time of statehood. I was, uh, I was actually talking to some students at the University of Munich a few weeks ago who are studying American studies. <laughs> And I was talking to them about Little Bighorn National Park specifically, but we talked about the national parks in general and, and their connection to Native Americans. And if you don't know the history of Yosemite and the history of Yosemite Valley, then you, you should. Every Californian should know how that great national park became a part of the United States because it was only at the suffering of Native Americans. You know, here's a story from a review committee meeting that actually is directly tied to a Berkeley collection. And um, I can send you links to the Federal Register notice where you can read about this. And this is all public information. The Wiat tribe of California was seeking the return of some regalia, items of clothing that are used for healing ceremonies. And uh, those, they were at Berkeley. They had been working for years to get that regalia back. The regalia was last used at a world healing ceremony, which occurred on, on an island somewhere in Northern California um, in the 1850s. Uh, I'm probably getting some dates wrong, but that's why you can read about this. It's known as Dulua Island or Indian Island in Humboldt County, California in the year 1860. At that ceremony, which brought together uh, a bunch of different tribes, within the same cultural group for a world healing ceremony. The purpose of the ceremony was to heal. There was a massacre by U.S. federal troops. Women and children killed. It was uh, devastating and yet all too common 
occurrence in this country. There were some survivors. One of those survivors held on to the regalia. She then used it as she could until about 1901 when someone, and I will not say who because I probably will get the wrong person, maybe Krober, but maybe somebody else, um, bought it from her. We also fact-checked this, and it was UC Berkeley professor Alfred Krober who purchased the regalia. In um, making the request for this to be returned, the we were talking about the need to restart uh, the ceremony, to have another world healing ceremony. And uh, at the time, in 2016, the WIAT brought this matter before the Federal Advisory Committee because Berkeley continued to refuse to repatriate the regalia. The review committee looked at the records, looked at the purchase receipt for the regalia, and decided that while um, it was a sacred item and it was needed for a ceremony, it wasn't cultural patrimony because it had transferred into personal ownership after that massacre. It's pretty legal, technical. Uh, the committee was fairly split. I think it was uh, a vote of two to three. So that's where it ended. And, and in that status, then Berkeley had some what we call right of possession. They didn't have a clear requirement to repatriate. But I am happy to say that Berkeley did reverse its decision, um, very recently published a notice to repatriate that regalia as both a sacred object and object of cultural patrimony. It's a really great story of how that regalia that was taken under such awful circumstances as a part of a healing ceremony, or was lost, I should say, in those horrible circumstances is being returned to be used for healing. Wow, thank you. That's an incredible story and uh, kind of touches on how you know there's difference in understanding what private property or individual property and community property. And it really makes me think about, you know, how private property is really affected tribes and land and culture um, and just mm -hmm. these ideas and concepts that are not common in an Indian country today. So thank you for that. And really, it, your words kind of show how this history, which maybe, you know, centuries before really comes into today. And when you look at the national parks, when you look at these, these hearings and stuff like that, it's still important and it still can help with healing. So I really appreciate that historian's uh, perspective and background. <laughs> I think that's, that's really good for listeners to, to hear. Over the last um, six, nine months in this country, um, we've seen a, a significant movement of, uh, of issues of racial justice and equality. Um, certainly here in Washington, DC, we've had um, a number of protests, um, both peaceful and violent. Um, and, and there's been a real um, shift, I would say, in our national conversation. Um, and I personally struggled a little bit at times um, being quarantined in my house in the suburbs and, and not feeling like day to day I was doing anything that, that really mattered in terms of this larger conversation that was happening. And, and then, um, then museums started issuing statements uh, about supporting um, the, the, the efforts to uh, change our society, um, to respond to the horrific um, uh, killings that had occurred. Um, and, and I, again, struggled sometimes with those statements because they didn't always match what I was seeing in terms of museums commitments to racial justice. 
in terms of Native Americans. There's one exception to that and that, that was the Abbey Museum in Maine. They issued this amazing statement um, about their role, not only in social change and social justice, um, but directly connected it to repatriation and their work in repatriation. And, and that was the time where I finally clicked, <laughs> right? It, it reminded me that the, the work that I do um, is responsive to this um, conversation we're having and, and these issues that our country is dealing with. Um, you know, some, some of the other examples I would point to are you know, the American Museum of Natural History in New York City um, had a lot of discussion and debate over removing the statue of Teddy Roosevelt, um, riding a horse on top of a Native American and an African American. And in the end, they use that as a teaching moment. They have an exhibit now about Roosevelt and his, the controversy and, and, and his own uh, difficult history, which is wonderful. And it's a wonderful opportunity for that museum to speak to um, you know, New Yorkers and, and Americans about these issues and, and our past. But what only one article I read <laughs> pointed out is that the American Museum of Natural History also has 2000 Native American ancestors in its collection. So to me, you know, if, if, if they wanna do something and commit themselves to social justice and change, repatriation should be a big part of that. Uh, it was a similar statement out of um, the Oakland Museum. The statement talked about how they were founded in 1968 um, in the middle of the civil rights movement and they were recommitting themselves to that founding. And I think that's great. I think it's so well, wonderful that museums have the ability to make these kinds of clear statements in support of uh, social justice. And there aren't as many, but there are still 30 ancestors sitting in the collections at the Oakland Museum. And that to me is, uh, is, is where I look. You know, I, this is what I do. I, I know what every museum holds. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> and so from a personal perspective, I, I often look at what museums are saying and then what they're actually doing. And I think that something I always try to encourage students to think about is not only where you're investing your money, your tuition money, and what they're doing with it, but certainly where you go to work and where you go to study after this. Check, see what their status is in, in terms of repatriation. You can do that really easily. It's on our website. You just go search a, a name and you can see all the records. It's all public, it's all there. Search NAGPRA database on your browser and the nps.gov link is the one. I wonder how many Native American students came to Berkeley and didn't know what was in the museum or in some cases under the, the pool and um, where the collections were held for so long. I think that it has a bigger impact on everybody than, than we realize. I think that knowing where the collections are and, and what's in them is important for all of us. I was actually able to come out to California um, just before everything shut down and give a presentation there at Berkeley about NAGPRA and, and congressional intent. I was invited on a tour of the museum and invited to see the collections and I, I refused to. I, I, I don't need to see that material and I, I don't even feel that comfortable being around it. And I think in large parts because I've heard 
testimony from tribal representatives about how painful it is that those collections are there and that there's so many ancestors still there at Berkeley. It seems like there's a lot of energy at those places and um, a lot of pain, like you're saying. That's really interesting how you, you refuse to go there too. Someone who's maybe not as aware of the issues might think, you know, you and your position would, would do that all the time. But that's a really interesting perspective that you share. And I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to add that to this. The great benefit of being a bureaucrat and being an administrator is that I don't have to go look at the things. <laughs> that's not my job. That's not my role in this. And I personally find that to be very, very comforting and, and more comfortable because, you know, I, I don't look at objects and assess them. That's not my job. That's, that's a tribe's job and, and the museum together to look at things and, and decide what's going to happen to them. My job is just to help guide people through this process. And that kind of neutrality or, or being on the fence and, and kind of just holding on to the law and the limits of the law is a very comfortable place for me. And I would say that, you know, in, in terms of thinking about career paths and possibilities for your future, you should really be thinking as much about your personality and, and where your comfort is as much as what work you want to do. I'm very fortunate to found a job that I find to be inspiring and helpful to our country and, and to the people of the United States. Um, but I'm also really lucky that I found a job that fits me as a person, that lets me do my best work in, in a way that's really comfortable for me. Thank you for that. I think that's really helpful. Um, and you acknowledging your positionality here and making sure to, you know, decenter your voice, it seems like, in a lot of times and really show your commitment to tribes and stuff. It's really great to hear. Thank you so much. No problem. I really like these conversations. So that concludes our interview with Melanie O'Brien from the National Park Service. I certainly will be calling on some of these museums and emailing them and calling them uh, to try to hold them accountable. And I was really taken aback that, you know, here in Oakland where I live, uh, this museum is still housing some of our ancestors. We hope this interview was informative and that it might be able to help support tribal interests in repatriation here in the United States. We'll be posting the links mentioned in this episode on our SoundCloud and Instagram, so look for them there. And stay tuned for our final episode in the series where we dig into the history of repatriation at the Hearst and identify exactly how many ancestors they're currently holding. Thanks so much for listening! We want to thank Native American Student Development for supporting us in this podcast. We also want to thank Melanie O'Brien for doing an interview with us, as well as Superman for letting us use his song, Prayer Loop. 